You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark and Caitlin, good afternoon. And welcome to our newest friend and colleague, Towner French, who joined us here in D.C. from another firm about six weeks ago, Towner? Six weeks ago, yes. All right. Absolutely. So, Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And I missed so, my first opportunity. Give a little uh, background on yourself, Towner, for the, for the listening audience. Thank you very much. Uh, spent uh, uh, six years lobbying before coming over to Cozen O'Connor at a different firm and uh, uh, finally at home here. And uh, prior to that, spent 15 years on Capitol Hill uh, working for uh, a lot of process-related uh, jobs at the House Rules Committee and 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 others. So uh, I deal with a lot of different issues, a diversity of issues, and uh, and deal with process issues. So very much looking forward to, to a couple of members of Congress. Yep. That's correct, and knows the House inside and out, which is obviously critical um, anytime in Washington, regardless of who's in what seats. Uh, you got to know the process. So we're thrilled to have you on our team and welcome to your debut on the Beltway Briefing. Now, I want to say for our listening audience that there may be a few interruptions today. Um, Towner's at home with a newborn. Mark is babysitting. His children have actually entrusted him. And for those of you regularly listening to this podcast, you may be skeptical but his children have entrusted him to watch their nine-month-old they, while they, they, they disappear. They know I will be giving B a good democratic grounding in life. Thank goodness for, for Sue Ellen. And yeah. I will have the last... <laughs> you, don't, you have no idea how true that is. <laughs> and I will have the last virtual trumpet lesson of the year going on in the background. So you may occasionally be serenaded by the sweet sounds of Jake Schweitzer on the on the trumpet, but we'll try to keep that to a minimum. Caitlin, it sounds like this is your show. Yeah, you just talked for for <laughs> yeah. 40 minutes, Caitlin. We're yeah. good with that. Improv. Counter on to provide a little more balance this week. All right. So yeah. Patrick is Patrick is off celebrating his like 14th birthday or something. So yeah. yeah. Not not 14 years old, his 14th celebration of the year. Ah, that that too. <laughs> uh so so all of you, so we're, I want to talk about where we are coming out of COVID, I guess you could say, and um, help our clients and listeners understand what they should be expecting from government here in the short term and then in the longer term. But, but just, to, just to kind of set the table in thinking about today's episode, I just see a sea of ambiguity. Um, we're kind of like I analogized it to, to being a tween from a COVID point of view, I guess. It's like, uh, and that's because I have a tween. We are, we're neither out of this nor still in it. Um, we are, we're somewhere in between, um, you know, in terms of COVID. The uh, the numbers are way down. 
the um, death rate is at its lowest point since March of, of 2020. We've declined to less than 20,000 cases a day on the seven-day average for the first time since March 2020. It was over 60,000 in April. Um, cases are down 75% since mid-April and over 90% since January. Um, we got some jobs numbers today. It was, again, another kind of muddled picture. It was 560, give or take, thousand jobs created, unemployment rate down to 5.8% from 6.1%, better than the April numbers, but still less than expected. And it's still very unclear. And, and we, we're talking to our clients every day about trying to find workers, something we've talked about before on the podcast. It's common source of discussion now out there in the business community. We're hearing about production bottlenecks, you know, car production being delayed because of an absence of semiconductors and all sorts of products being delayed. Um, we're hearing about massive potential additional government spending, but that seems to change by the day. And there's this bipartisan negotiation going on, but it's unclear whether that's real. We'll talk about that. Hacking is the issue du jour. Um, first it was oil, then it was meat. And now near and dear to Mark Alderman's heart, and I thought civilization was coming to an end. The Nantucket ferry was hacked, Mark. So you really well, know where to hit folks yeah. where hardest. Yeah, exactly. The steamship authority was hacked. The high line wasn't. So we had to scramble and get tickets on the high line fast ferry. There's a workaround, <laughs> but but the world is close to over when when ransomware arrives at the Nantucket ferry. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. I don't know. There's just there's all this stuff going on, um, all the all the toing and froing around whether to establish a January sixth commission. So there's a lot going on. I think let's make sense of it for people listening. What can and should business expect from government in the short term? Let's counter on on the the potential additional legislation what do you see here what do you see coming yeah i i still think it's going to be hard to come to a bipartisan agreement at the end of the day i mean you have uh, senator capito and and president biden uh, engaged in this negotiation that's never ending they also happen to be two of the nicest individuals uh, out there. So I don't see either one uh, really wanting to shut this down. Uh, you have some cheering it on uh, from the moderate side, and you have a lot uh, of folks on the on the polls, uh, the progressives and the conservatives, uh, really trying to undermine these conversations because they have an agenda. Um, you know, like to think we're in this utopian place where a bipartisan deal could uh, could come together. Um, but I, I think one of the things that um, that was true last year in in the CARES Act 2.0 sort of negotiations that seemed to to fester for eight months. Uh, was that even if we come to a top line number, there's a a great disagreement as to what should actually be paid for with that top line number at the end of the day. 
Well, and and it, just to follow up on that, if I may, uh, what should be paid for? Although I think there's less difficulty getting to an answer on that than there is on how to pay for it. I think what is going to crater the bipartisan effort is is the pay for. I don't I don't know how the president surrenders much more of his tax position than he already has without losing the Democratic caucus. I don't know how the Republicans go for anything without losing that caucus. So I I actually think there's encouraging consensus about the need for infrastructure, about the definition, this is Caitlin's favorite part, the definition of what infrastructure actually is. It, it is some things, but not everything. And I think they could get to, to their trillion dollar number. I don't think they're going to agree on how to pay for it. And once it gets dumped into reconciliation, then, then they got to start all over. The administration has to start all over and convince uh, 50 Democrats to agree to the same bill. I'm still of the view that the good news on COVID makes it harder to do, harder to spend more money. I, I think the good news on COVID is pretty much the death knell for the next bill, for the human infrastructure bill. I think the combination of something way in the weeds, which is a parliamentarian ruling about how reconciliation can work, and the improvement of the economy and the improvement of of COVID. I I don't know that President Biden's going to get that second front of human infrastructure, which has a lot of things that our clients care about in it, healthcare most, most especially. But I don't think, Howard, that any of that is going to impact the the actual, the Caitlin definition of in- infrastructure, because everybody's bridges are falling down. Bridges aren't, aren't, aren't partisan. Everybody's- Some of that has to get done, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, that has to get done. Well, the highway bill has to get done. Right. It expires at the end of September. I mean, they could kick it down the down the road again for a year, um, but that's not uh, what Congress likes to do with this. And and you know, to to Mark's point, the the American Families Plan, that that human infrastructure plan, uh, it felt almost like a um, a concession. Uh, from President Biden, though. It didn't include uh, some of Senator Sanders and other progressives' uh, big health care uh, talking points. It didn't uh, forgive $50,000 in student loan uh, debt. It seemed like, uh, here's a little bit of something, progressives, uh, for you to get excited about. But ultimately, uh, the American Families Plan, uh, I agree, is going to be an issue for the midterm elections, it's not going to be an issue for Congress to tackle uh, this winter or next spring. Caitlin, you've been spending a lot of time with some senior Republican senators at um, various events around town. As as the world normalizes, what are you, what are you hearing? What are you hearing from that crowd? Well, what I'm hearing, Howard, is exactly what you just said. I think people, there is a fatigue on more government spending. Republicans, getting back to the question of how to pay for the American Jobs Plan or some form of a large infrastructure package, 
the Republicans are really pushing. I was with Senator Rick Scott, Senator Todd Young, and Senator Chuck Grassley last week. They are pushing to repurpose some of the hundreds of millions of dollars that are still unspent from the last COVID relief package. The states that are saying, we, we've got a budget surplus right now. We don't need this infusion of cash from the federal government. Why not take some of those funds and repurpose them towards a bipartisan infrastructure package? That's really the firm line that the Republicans are taking, not increasing taxes at a time as our economy is growing out of a global pandemic. Um, you know, even some of these relief programs, for example, we've got several clients that were very interested in the restaurant revitalization program, which very quickly ran out of money. And there is appetite to do something, but the Republican perspective is there's enough money already in the system. We've already we've already outlaid all of these hundreds of millions in the last plan. Let's repurpose these funds towards some of these relief programs and to the bipartisan infrastructure package. That's their red line. Yeah, Mark. What's the president? has signaled he's prepared to do to a degree. That's part of the talks that, that's going on. But I don't think they're going to get a trillion dollars of repurposed uh, COVID funds. So there's still a, a funding gap. And part of what's going on, of course, is that Democrats, many Democrats, not all by any means, or, or this would be going differently, but many Democrats want to use the infrastructure package to do some tax policy making, and they aren't going to do some tax policy making. Yeah, if it happens, it will. <laughs> but but I think that's that's where I see this falling apart as a bipartisan matter. I don't think you're going to get 50 Democrats to agree, okay, fine, we're not touching the, the Trump Tax Act. We're not, we're not doing anything with taxes because the Republicans don't want to. And we're just going to take money that we already gave to other people and put it in roads. So do you think, that, Towner, that it gets, yeah. something gets done on a, on a partisan basis at the end of the day? I think so. I think so. This is, uh, you know, the the groundwork is already being laid this week while Congress is out of town. Uh, Leader Schumer's been uh, talking to uh, to the Senate parliamentarians, trying to continue to set up uh, how they move forward with the fiscal year 22 uh, budget resolution that was just uh, presented to Congress by President Biden uh, at the end of May. Uh, they are they're gearing up to move ahead uh, on a on a partisan basis, but uh, obviously. Legislating via budget reconciliation means you can't have uh, actual policy change. You can only affect revenue, uh, plus or minus. And uh, you know, if Congress continues down this path, uh, they aren't going to do anything productive when it comes to statutory changes that uh, uh, the Democrats would still like to see. Uh, the 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 both plans, the jobs plan and the families plan, were set up uh, to make underlying systemic changes to the system, not just provide money. And so I think they're going to have a glass half full. You can do tax policy, right? Through reconciliation. You can't right. do health care policy. You can't do the minimum wage. Pro Act, for example, through reconciliation. 
which we're okay with that, Caitlin, though. We right? are. We're good. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's policy. We have our own reasons for, for being okay with that not passing. Just, Mark, it feels to me like the administration came out of the gate strong. Um, and But it feels to me like Biden's lost some of his mojo here. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi was talking about a bill being done by the July 4th recess, it's June 4th today. That's, that's not happening. Um, uh, it, it feels to me like the administration it has got, gone a little rudderless. Well, I, you'll be shocked to hear that I couldn't disagree more about the rudderless part. They know exactly what they want to do. I agree they're finding it harder to do now than they did in the beginning, because in the beginning, it was more of a COVID. And now that the success, some of which is attributable to the Biden administration, but with the success of the vaccine program in this country, some of the air is out of the balloon, as you started out saying, I'm getting stuff done, but that's very different than being rudderless. I think this is- Well, I think it leaves them without a guiding light. And, and I think that as a result, they're a little bit flat-footed. And even on some of their most significant priorities, as he kind of shrinks and negotiates down this infrastructure bill, stuff that he wanted well- to do- isn't going to get done. And whether it's partisan or bipartisan, and it feels like... Are you channeling your favorite Senator Elizabeth Warren right now, Howard? Yeah, most definitely. And it feels like he just... It it, it just feels like on on climate, on some of his very high but secondary priorities, like he's, he's... There's not a lot of momentum. The momentum that would have been there, just isn't. Well, two things. First of all, um, I think you're ignoring the the executive branch, something you're very, very familiar with when you say that, because we we run into this in our work every day. The, The advocacy, you might even say zealotry, for climate and other Biden priorities in the agencies and departments is absolutely there. He he has done a systematic job of placing true believers in those positions. So there's no loss of direction or, or initiative in the executive branch in Congress. And, and, and it's what you said, uh, I said a second ago, with, with COVID abating, not disappearing, but abating, yeah, it, it's it's harder to talk about big bold programs, but by the way, that 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 is a good thing. That is a good thing. No, it is. It is. It's Fundamentally, just you can't you can't dispute that the, the Biden administration has had a hand in the vaccination success. And that that we are reopening in some very confusing and, and very unclear way. 
but they are victims of that success when they go to the Hill and, and say that the platform's on fire. Right. Mark, I, I might jump in just to say, though, Republicans have spent the last few weeks driving a legitimate wedge between President Biden and his administration, his executive branch, uh, which are, as you would, as you said, very progressive. And he probably isn't all the way there. And if if Biden were listening to uh, Mayor Pete, uh, Secretary Buttigieg, if Biden were listening to some of the other cabinet secretaries, uh, he would have abandoned bipartisan negotiations weeks ago. Um, and so it's uh, it's an interesting uh, thread that Republicans have been uh, desperately trying to pull for the last two weeks. Uh, and we'll see how that that turns out for him later on down the line and whether or not there is a divide there. So what's their game tower? Is it, and Caitlin, is it, um, they want to come out of this at the end of the day looking like they tried really, really hard to cut a bipartisan deal and they were willing to negotiate, but Biden just wouldn't do it. And there's like a cat and mouse game going on. Exactly right. Is that it? It's, It's a classic game of hot potato right now. Nobody wants to be the one that kills the negotiation. Um, And I think that's uh, because of a couple of different reasons. First of all, there was reporting that said, you know, several advisors to the president are now in favor of a bipartisan uh, effort inside the White House. And there's a divide even even in uh, in the offices surrounding the Oval Office at this point. Uh, But in addition to that, I think a lot of political folks are looking and saying, with Trump not in a midterm election, there is a considerable middle uh, this time around uh, for the midterm elections. And those who show that they're actually doing something, that they're trying to be productive and trying to get along uh, with the other side, uh, may have some better success capturing that middle. And I I think that's why you're seeing uh, both sides continue uh, what we've all sort of agreed in this podcast may be a, a doomed uh, bipartisan negotiation, but uh, but consider it nonetheless well, because you don't want to look like you're you're the one who uh, tanked it. Big infrastructure bills have always been bipartisan historically. It's something that both parties have been able to come together around, and it's something that's needed. That everyone from the U.S. Chamber to the National Association of Manufacturers to everyone wants an infrastructure. The bill. labor unions. To labor unions, exactly. Yeah, but. It's all of the above. Absolutely. I agree. But it's also who Joe Biden is. He may be the last man in his administration to believe in bipartisanship. And he overcame it when he had to to get the uh, the rescue plan passed. But but this is who he said he would be. And he was criticized early on for not being more patient and more bipartisan, criticized by Republicans. Now he is being maybe too patient and too bipartisan. He's getting criticized by Democrats. So it, it, it isn't easy being Joe Biden right now, but he is being true to himself. This is what he believes he, he was elected to do. and. I, I think he's going to hang in there for a little while longer. I just don't think he's going to get it done. And what we saw last time is when he doesn't get it done by, with a bipartisan bill, then he's all in on, on reconciliation. Well, 
it certainly isn't Kamala Harris because she's busy going to Guatemala, going around the country to try to get people vaccinated and focused on voting rights. She's got quite the uh, trifecta of the portfolio that she's well, been handed by the president. You know, the, I didn't see the Guatemala part, but nothing wrong with advocating for voting rights and vaccines. No, but it's not the easiest portfolio is the point. No, no, and nothing's easy. This Now we're back to your beginning where you listed everything except the uh, NBA playoffs as something that's confusing and unclear. that's confusing too. LeBron lost last night in the first round. That's very it's confusing. Uh, Mark. Yeah. If the Sixers can get past Brooklyn in the round after this, in the third round, having dispatched the Washington, whatever they're called. Uh, I, I think this, this could be a good run for Philadelphia, but everything is confusing. But everything we have said on this podcast, although Caitlin and Towner, of course, think very clearly and cogently with their Republican talking points, but but it's just simply a confusing world out there. But there are trend lines, Howard, to, to go all the way back to the beginning, just a second. You know, trend lines aren't linear. They don't go straight no. up, up, down and sideways. But we're in a the trend line on COVID is good. Mark, it's like line. it's like it's like our client, the New York Knicks. About it, Mark, it is good. We should be exciting. We, we should be excited. We should be happy. It's People like our client, the New work. York Knicks. They finally made the playoffs, but they <laughs> lost in the first round. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of on our way, but we're not quite there yet. It's Maybe confusing. It's confusing. Fair enough. I um. Okay, I was. Well, what, what, what aren't we celebrating? I, I'm celebrating a good. I gotta say, it does look. The world feels so much more normal. It does. It is, and that's the goal. And and we're reaching our goals. And now we gotta go back to work. Caitlin can't wait to get back into the office. <laughs> um, but I was struck going back to the the hacking. I was really struck by the response of the administration to, to that. Because to me, you know, you, you hack a large oil and aviation fuel pipeline, uh, gas and aviation fuel. It's like, that's a problem government should be responding to. And they are on some level. The FBI director, I think, referred to it as something akin to 9-11 as far as the scale of the attempted government response. Um, we just, we feel very vulnerable. And I was struck by this memo that the administration put out, I think yesterday, to, to leaders in business about ransomware. And it's like, back up your computers. I mean, it's, it was, it was, I read it. You have to actually go and read the memo. It was, it was very basic and, and silly to me. And, you know, consult with your IT departments. Like that's not what people are looking to, to government for Mark. And I, um, I, I, I was, I was at, that's part of what, has led me to feel like 
the administration isn't on its game as much as they were in the early days? Oh, the president's out for a bike ride. Who would have thought the Trump administration would have been tougher on Russia than our current administration? Towner looks like he wants to chime in there. You're muted, Towner. I love it. No, I'm not. I just love it. I love it. I'm waiting for Mark's response. <laughs> I missed the memo on ransomware because I was dealing with it. I was trying to get tickets uh, from one ferry to another. But, but I don't think we don't know what we don't know. I don't think we know what the administration's response with Russia has been. I don't see any evidence that the Trump administration was tougher on Russia than the Biden administration. But vulnerability is absolutely real. It's absolutely, Howard, something that government exists to protect us against. And and government writ large isn't making us feel that secure. I don't think it's a Biden or even a Trump thing, it is that as as the world becomes more complicated, confusing, and, and dangerous, we become more vulnerable. And the capacity of government to protect us becomes more limited. I think that is that is a factor that that we're living with and will be for some time. We was also struck by uh, the announcement today from Facebook that they're banning Trump for for two years. Caitlin's rolling her eyes. You can't see that, but <laughs> Caitlin's rolling her eyes. I'm calling her out. They banned Trump for two years for his incendiary commentary on Facebook and his role, I guess, in, in January 6th. And... I, again, there. I mean, it's this isn't a Biden administration thing, it, but uh, it's like Facebook is taking the <laughs> Facebook is now the enforcer. It's just a weird world. Well, Facebook yeah. is bigger than the federal government. It, it, it isn't a partisan thing to say that Washington doesn't know what to do with big tech. Nobody saw Facebook coming. Nobody saw Twitter coming. Nobody saw Google coming. Nobody saw where we are coming. And government is absolutely flat on its feet in dealing with the reality that these companies, they they don't have more military power than the federal government, but they otherwise have more power to move people, move markets. I guess I'm thinking back to when I was at the Treasury Department and we were kind of going from the um, true crisis phase to uh, of the financial crisis to um, an unsettled but um, less harried kind of like we weren't living every living and dying by every single headline. It was only every other headline, but kind of a mid-2009 um, type of situation. And, the, you know, there was this period Obama took office and kind of laid down this edict, thou shalt not talk to the business community. They tried to kind of shut the business community out. And then they realized, 
and and I guess they was we because I was I was sitting in the Treasury Department then. No, we actually need engagement from from the private sector. We need a dialogue to understand kind of yeah, government fought the fight, but now like how do we actually get out of this thing? How do we move on? And I feel like the administration this administration is coming to terms with with that a little bit and I think we're at a period where they need to hear from people in business. They need to hear from the private sector. They need to understand the challenges that business is facing. It's it, they're not the easiest crowd to engage, but we engage them each and every day, and that's that's what we do for a living. A living, and we're you know we're we're very very good at it. Um, but you need to. They need to hear what's going on because they don't know what's going on out there. They don't know what is is happening in you know in in terms of hiring people. They don't know what the lumber markets look like where it's like five times the cost to buy a piece of plywood that it was a year ago. They you need to be engaged with government in order for them to to know what to do. And I do feel like this administration is a little bit losing its way. And the way to find it back is to understand what's actually going on out there. And it does feel like kind of that mid-09 Obama-Rama period. And and I guess I just encourage folks that are listening to this to look for opportunities to convey what's going on out there because they need to hear. So that's my... Uh, that's my filibuster. Oh, absolutely. Uh, engagement is is good, and we spend a lot of time trying to engage. It isn't uh, always as as linear as as we would like, but sure, they need to hear in the in the White House and throughout the executive branch of what's going on. But I do think one thing that's happened, Howard, is I I think that we have succeeded with the vaccine and COVID quicker than they ever thought we would. When Joe Biden announced early on 100 million shots in arms in the first 100 days, I, I, I for one, didn't think he could do it. And I think most of the country didn't. It turned out to be 200 million. We, we don't yeah, know but he didn't do that, Mark. No, no, I'm not that. saying you did it. What I'm saying is that the emergency that he inherited when he when he took office is abating. We hope, we hope permanently. We don't really know where we are with this virus, but I don't think they thought we would be as successful as we have been. And I think that their playbook has been overtaken by events. Yeah, well, thank goodness. Caitlin, you get the last word. Well, I would just add that, you know, there are a lot of folks in the former administration who worked on COVID relief, and we are exactly where they expected us to be at this time, um, that worked on Operation Warp Speed and the positivity and coming out of this in a new normal. This is what, you know, even our former president said we where we would be yeah. by April, I mean, May, and June, and here we are. So give a little credit where credit's yeah. due. None of these guys get the credit. I'll give, 
Alba Borla at Pfizer and whoever runs Moderna, they get the credit towner. Not, I don't give any of these guys credit for being the ones, I mean, God, the medical miracle is, is amazing. That's exactly right. Let's give the R and D tax credit, all the credit uh, for coming up with these things in advance. There you go. So you actually, you're the new guy, you get the last word. So there you go. Well, thanks for joining us, Towner. Uh, Thank you for having to me. have you on the team and look forward oh, to many happened, of these. What happened to the trumpet? I've been waiting for. I know. I know. Maybe our lead out song. Yeah. yeah. It's, we should have had it. I'll, we'll get our guys to dub some in, Mark, and <laughs> we don't want to disappoint the audience. Not taps, though. We don't need a trumpet playing taps. Uh, great. Well, guys, terrific as always, and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.